ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. I'm a humanities instructor and debate coach at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. My guest this episode is, a, uh, at the very least, a logic teacher and I think another other humanities as well teacher mm-hmm. and uh, debate coach, uh, Brian Brooks from Texas. Brian, welcome to the show. Hi, Josh. Thanks for having me. Uh, Brian, I, I probably should have looked this up or asked you about it for the show, but what all, what all do you do at your school? Uh, so I teach, uh, like you said, I teach 7th and 8th grade informal and formal logic. I also teach 7th uh, grade ancient history, um, 11th grade ethics and government, two different electives there, um, 11th grade classical rhetoric, and 12th grade history and literature. Very nice. Very nice. And that's, I'm assuming that's a classical school that you're at then, it sounds like. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Uh, so, Brian, I remember, uh, if I remember this correctly, we overlapped for one year at Hillsdale. I was a senior mm-hmm. when you were a freshman. Uh, but mm-hmm. tell us a bit about your background with debate. When did you get into this? What all have you debated? And when, tell us some, maybe some good stories, if any come to mind. So um, I started debating when I was 17 as a junior in high school. I competed in the homeschool uh, debate league, the NCFCA. Um, competed, yeah, in team policy and IEs uh, there. Uh, I competed for Hillsdale for three years in NFALD and uh, parliamentary debate. A little, little bit of IPD, I think I went to one tournament. Um, and so after I graduated, I coached at Hillsdale, Marshall, uh, Nebraska, Omaha, and yeah, now I'm the debate coach at Grace Academy. So one of my favorite memories is actually your first debate round ever. I don't remember it. I don't remember if you, I don't know if you remember this. I, I don't. So this might so, be terrible. Please continue. <laughs> so you remember your senior year, we decided that we wanted to win uh, pie cap sweepstakes. So we threw you into novice NPDA. So I still remember you, and I think it was Blake Faulkner, were partners in a practice round out in the old cafeteria at Hillsdale. And uh, Will told you, you know, the key to parley is always be turning, always be turning. And so you and Blake got up there and labeled every single argument a turn, regardless <laughs> if it was, I think you like labeled your T as a turn also. Like topicality, dissad, solvency, doesn't matter. Everything was a turn. <laughs> All in on T. That's just that's that's what I had in my head. All in on T. Whether that means topicality or turn, it's all about exactly. that letter T. Exactly. Ooh. So that was honestly, I forgot about that until uh, until I started like you know thinking back to our time together at Hillsdale. But yeah, that was one of the funniest rounds I've ever seen. <laughs> There, there is something about people being brand new to debate. I've, I've seen students do this from the other side, being their coach, looking mm-hmm. at them now. When you're brand new at debate and there are there's a thousand things to try and remember and you're mm-hmm. supposed to do them all and really fast and correctly and somehow also sound good while you do all of these exactly. things. So Sometimes you just, you just on one thing and that's you it. just go for it. That's, that's all you got. I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that's all I had at least. Well, uh, Brian, I know you're, you've, you've been at Grace for a couple of years now. Did, did you inherit a debate program? Are you the original or originator of their debate program? How does that so, work? Yeah, we actually created a debate, a debate program by accident. Um, so my first year at Grace, uh, my uh, head of school, he's at, actually at Hillsdale now, but my head of school said, yeah, we would love to have a debate program, but never had anyone who knows anyone who knows anything about debate. Um, so... I was like, well, okay, cool. In a couple of years, once I get my you know, feet set here, uh, that might be something to look into. 
So on a whim one day, it must have been right before Thanksgiving break, I just started kind of Googling around debate leagues in the area and found the NCFL, the National Catholic Forensics League. Hmm. Um, and just on a whim, emailed their, um, their regional coordinator. And he was like, oh, yeah, our regionals are super small. And if you bring kids, some of them will probably qualify. So what, it's in 45 days. Why not do that? So I went, so I went, to, my, I went to my boss and his boss's boss um, and was like, so this came up. And by that afternoon, we had a debate program and qualified two teams, uh, MPF and one duo team uh, to nationals. And the next year, we switched over to policy because I realized I don't know how to coach PF very well. And my novices want to do policy and not PF. So um, we are a policy-only program now uh, competing in NSDA and CFL. And we want to try to start getting TOC bids in the next couple of years. Interesting. So you are you said you are going to try to move into TOC circuit, mm-hmm. the TOC circuit. Yeah, I, I have a couple debaters that are absolutely brilliant. Uh, they're young enough that they have time to learn. And yeah, I think that they could be competitive on the TOC circuit. Interesting. I met several students who compete in TOC this summer at the mm-hmm. Coolidge Cup, and uh, it, it it's like listening to another language. I mean, listening mm-hmm. to them the way they process debate. It's just a totally different ball game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's pretty exciting. Oh, now yeah. I'm I'm curious. Tell me tell me about how how it's gone coaching. I mean, I I I think. I, I honestly, I think my debating skills have probably declined a little bit because I'm now focused on this whole different mm-hmm. skill set that's involved in always encouraging students. Um, mm-hmm. You may have a different type of student, but my students don't learn terribly well from negative encouragement. They, they, I tend to find pretty good success in just always encouraging whatever they're currently doing well. But I don't know that that's been great for my own ability to debate ideas and see where I can improve. Uh, but anyway, enough about me. Tell me about what you what what are you seeing debate now that you're looking at it from a coach's angle. So yeah, so one of the sweetest cards I've ever gotten from any student was a uh, was a teacher appreciation card from she's a junior varsity debater for us now. But it said, "Mr. Brooks, thank you for being a great coach, and thank you for telling me that I suck." no i i i agree with you that like uh you know doing practice rounds and if i have to debate in a practice round i oftentimes am sitting there thinking i used to be able to give this speech but i can't do this anymore and you know watching my kids who can talk faster than me and do better impact calc and stuff like that than me so yeah there's definitely that regression in skills but my big thing as a policy coach is that I tell my students, I will never lie to you. So if I give you a compliment, you know that, I mean, I may have to do a little bit of digging to give a compliment, but if I give you a compliment, you know that you've earned it and you know that it is something that you legitimately did well. Um, I might not tell you everything that you need to work on, but yeah, I found that my, and this might just be the students that I have, but a lot of the students that I have appreciate me telling them, you are very, very bad at this, but that's okay let's get better at it. So yeah, my, that was one of my favorite cards I ever got. Thank you for telling me that I, it said, thank you for telling me that I suck. I hate it when people give me false compliments and it helps me get better when you say that I'm bad at something. That's that's fantastic. Uh, I think I I usually tell my students that uh, no one ever has a worse round than their very first round of Mm -hmm. debate ever. And that's actually a really good thing because you only go up Mm -hmm. from there. (laughs) Exactly. So I took, five novice teams of eighth graders to their first ever policy tournament this weekend. 
most of their first full round was round one of the tournament. Um, and I told them, look, I don't care if you guys win a single round, which is good because some of them did. Right, um, I right. don't care if you guys win a single round. The only goal is for you to get the context for what I'm saying in class so we can fix it later on, so we can learn later on. But I can teach at you all you want. And l- until you go to a tournament and get those losses, it's not going to matter. Like, you're not going to understand it. That's so true. I mean, I think I, I usually find students need to go at least one, sometimes two mm-hmm. tournaments, just to yep. see how all the pieces fit together. And then suddenly it clicks and mm-hmm. they've got constructive, cross, rebuttal, final statements, crystallization, uh, research analysis, the, uh, being able to, de- 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 uh, to determine whether or not a card is strong or weak. They can do all of that suddenly. Mm-hmm. And before I can give them a PowerPoint about it all, and it, it's just nothing. Yeah. I, I found, you know, I've been doing debate in some capacity for about 12 years now. And I always tell my students that in all those 12 years, I have never seen a, sting, a single student that wants to do well, that wants to succeed and is willing to put in the time. I've never seen a single student not have at least some competitive success. And everybody seems to have that light bulb moment where, like you said, it just suddenly makes sense. For some people, that's two weeks after you first start debating. For some people, it's a year. But... It's there's always almost that always almost always there we go that moment where everything just suddenly kind of comes together and you can suddenly do those things. I had a I've got one guy who's debated with me for four or five years now and he's a senior and he 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 is I've seen his growth in debate skills. Mm-hmm. He's not the hardest working student on the team, but he's he's been there longer than a lot of the folks who've come home with trophies. And but this last tournament, he and his partner were uh, they cleaned house, and it oh, was just awesome. beautiful to watch. Okay, took us four years, but we got to this spot, and he can think so much more sharply and speak mm-hmm. so much more eloquently than any of his non-debate peers. But then to see him finally walk home with a trophy, I just was so excited. Now, well, Brian, uh, I know we're we're. Here, what's the res? I'm recording in Raleigh, North Carolina, so we're we're in a different section of the of the country. But my understanding is that Texas is huge for debate. Uh, and, uh, so tell us about. I know you've mentioned policy. Uh, is there, is policy kind of the main thing that most of the schools in Texas are debating, or are they doing kind of everything? Um, yeah. So the area where we are, we're in the Austin area. Um, policy is not the big thing. If you want kind of the policy hotbeds in Texas, you need to go to either Houston or Dallas. Um, those are those are the two big areas for policy. Um, where we are, I mean, Austin is following the same trend as the rest of, as the, rest of the country. Um, huge shift to PF. LD is basically, is basically becoming policy light um, and a huge shift toward Congress. So more or less the same shift that... Uh, that's going on in the rest of the country. I think we're probably the only new policy program in several years in the Austin area. Okay. Uh, I, I at least am maintaining there's still a lot of value in traditional LD that actually uses no, a dash of philosophy and a bit of an actual values. I would love to see that traditional LD make a comeback. No, I, I agree with you. And especially, you know, you, you and I both teach at classical schools. Like that would be perfect for our students. And oh, yeah. from a competitive standpoint, they would clean up. Uh, from a pedagogical standpoint, like that would be perfect to you know enhance what we're t- teaching in the classroom. But there's just that shift toward policy because I think at the end of the day it's easier, and most kids have a better context for policy than for values. So it is what it is. That's true. 
That's true. Well, uh, I'd love for you to help me know a little bit more about policy because uh, yeah, that, sure. that's not a ton I know about. How, how does it work? What, what kind of analysis do you use in policy? Uh, what, what's really unique to policy debate that's not happening in public forum or LD or Congress? Mm-hmm. So when I was explaining uh, policy to my kids, you know, they knew some about PF. We sent a couple kids to a couple LD tournaments, and they kind of like those. When I was explaining policy to my kids, I kind of explained it as it combines everything together. So the structure of policy is obviously you have a resolution this year. It's about reduction in arms sales um, to other countries. Uh, you have a resolution. You have It's two teams of two, you know, the affirmative and the negative. One thing that's pretty unique to policy is that, you know, in PF, the resolution is very, very specific. Um, I don't know what the current PF resolution is. But, uh, um, it's that uh, the United States, or I'm sorry, the European Union should join the Belt and Road Initiative. Okay, that's right, that's right. So yeah, it's very specific. Um, policy resolutions tend to be pretty broad <clears throat> and have a pretty broad topic area. So in the uh, in the first affirmative speech, the affirmative gets up and actually proposes a policy. So the resolution is this very broad statement, and um, the affirmative speech says yeah, we agree with this broad statement, and here's an example that we could do to fulfill that broad statement. So, you know, resolution is decrease arms sales to type, uh, to decrease arms sales. The affirmative could be let's cancel the current sale of arms to Taiwan. Um, that's what we're running right now. Um, and so you have this very specific um, example of the resolution. And then the negative has to respond to that. They can't respond to the resolution as a whole. They have to respond to the specific policy that the affirmative brings up. So you get a lot of topic-specific education, very specific education um, from your affirmative. We also get a broad topic, uh, broad topic education from your negative. Um, and policy also tends to focus a lot on unintended consequences. So most negative arguments are what's called disadvantages, just unintended consequences of your plan. Um, so, of course, the negative can say, you know, arms sales to Taiwan are good. We need to keep doing arms sales to Taiwan and things like that. But they could also bring up completely, un- well, not unrelated, but completely different impacts outside of the affirmative. Um, so one example of a dissent that we're running is if you cut off arms sales to Taiwan, that is going to cause Israel to freak out because they see that we're backing away from an ally in the southeast, you know, in the South Pacific. Israel thinks, well, they, they may not uh, protect us against Iran anymore, and that causes e- Israel to uh, go to war with Iran, something like that. Unintended consequences. So you get this wide education and this, uh, and this, I guess, ability to see different facets of politics and different facets of the world being interconnected. So you get to kind of see one policy affecting everything outside of it. Wow. Okay. So you're so. What what is the round structure? How, how oh, does the right. round structure work? That was your first question. I didn't answer it. That's okay. Um, <laughs> Right. But you gave so, us a great. You gave us a great. I, I didn't realize that each time the the affirmative is presenting a policy. Because that because if I remember, if I understand this correctly, you have the same resolution for an entire season. Exactly. But you could go to a tournament having presenting policy plan A. Mm-hmm. Get back and like, wow, that that was crap. Let's come yep. up with a new one. So you really could write various cases on the same resolution. Exactly. So so last year. Um, we, in the first semester, we, the uh, resolution was the United States federal government should significantly change its policy on legal immigration. So our first case, I don't remember what it was, but it was really bad. Um, <laughs> I think it had something to do with H-1B visa caps, and we just lost everyone. We're like, well, okay, 
time to change tactics. So we did some research and came back with a completely different affirmative to allow an, accept, an, an, allow an exception for Afghan translators that helped us in the war on terror to immigrate to the U.S. Um, so completely different topic under the same resolution. And that affirmative did really well. So it lets you, you, know, it lets you pivot to a different topic underneath the resolution. Fascinating. Okay. So how does the, so affirmative gets how long for first constructive? Good. So, um, policy rounds generally take around two hours, which is a marathon to judge, especially when it's not a very good round. um, (laughs) So there's four constructive speeches. Each person gets a constructive and they're uh, all eight minutes long. Um, so the affirmative gets up and presents their, uh, presents their case for eight minutes. Then there's three minutes of cross-examination. Um, where, you know, the people, the negative gets to ask the affirmative questions. It's not like crossfire. It's not everybody asking everybody else questions. Then the negative gets up and speaks for eight minutes um, with their first negative constructive. Then another cross-ex, then you get two more constructives where they're adding uh, adding more arguments to the table. The affirmative can read another advantage in their second speech or respond to what the negative just said. Same thing with the negative. They can... Uh, bring up more disadvantages, more counterplans, whatever, in their second uh, constructive, or just build on the first constructive. And then you have the rebuttal phase, which is four minute, uh, four or five minute speeches where you kind of pare down all these arguments. You know, you have all these arguments out in the round from 24 minutes of speaking, and now you kind of pare down the arguments to the most important ones, uh, to the most important ones in the in the round. Man, okay, so there's a lot of there's two hour rounds. That's that's kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's annoying to judge when you have round after round after round that you know you're in round for six hours at a time if there's no break between rounds. Are you typically competing at single day or two day tournaments? Two day. Two day. Um, okay. it, it's very very difficult to get even four prelims plus out rounds into a single day tournament. Yeah, I I would imagine maybe the the tournaments <laughs> that we've run here we use a style that sounds like. Literally, I think it's the exact same structure you just mentioned, but everything is cut in half that was put together by the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. We do single-day tournaments with that, but each round is about 45 minutes. and We do four rounds and just calculate the top teams from those four. But for you're talking like prelims and out rounds, that would have to take two days. So, yeah, and another quirk in um, policy. So, oh, also each team gets eight minutes of prep time. So that adds quite a bit. Oh, okay. Um, but another quirk of policy is that before you give a speech, you know, read your cards, read your analytics, whatever, you have to give it to both the other team and the judge. Um, and since everything is paperless, that means either flash it to everyone in the room on a flash drive or email it if you have Wi-Fi. So that can take a long time, especially when you have younger novices that don't really know how to use computers yet. Um, wow. So, okay. so that tends to add a lot of extra time. Interesting. Okay, so that that's um, I learned the word for that this last summer. Is that is that fitting? Is that that's disclosure, right? You're disclosing your case. Okay, Mm -hmm. so and if I understand this correctly, disclosure is closely tied to spreading in your case. Correct. Okay. Is that is there a case to be made for spreading? Because I I still can't quite understand why this is a good thing. But I know you 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 told me before that you like it and you you think it's a good thing. Yes, I absolutely think that spreading is the ideal way to. To practice debate. Say more. Why? Why? Sounds good. All right. So spreading developed, I think, around the 90s or so, because one dude somewhere realized if he talks slightly faster than other people, he can get more arguments out. And so 
After that, it just becomes an arms race of who can talk faster. But so the problem with debate is that it doesn't allow us to actually interrogate topics very well. That was one of my big frustrations with both NFALD in college and with public forum when we were doing it, that you don't get a whole lot of topic-specific education because there's just not enough time to do it. Um, like in LD, you know, rounds are 45 minutes long. It doesn't overly matter how much research I do after the first 20 or so pages of cards. Like after I get my first best card to respond to a disset or to respond to an argument, I don't really need to do anything else because we're never going to get deep enough into the topic um, that I need that I need anything else. So there's a very shallow educational trough there. I don't think I said that right, but there's a very shallow level of education. What spreading lets you do is it lets you actually interrogate those ideas and actually follow different different uh, argumentative argument argumentative threads uh, throughout the round without having to worry as much about the about the time limits. So in policy, there's what. 48 minutes total of speaking time. When you cut that down into speeches, it's really not a lot unless you're speaking really quickly. If you are speaking really quickly, you can get three, four times as many arguments out on the table, which means that you need to have done the research to get three, four times as many arguments on the table, which then means that the other team needs to respond to three or four times as many arguments, which means they need to have done the research. So spreading really, because it lets you get more arguments out, it lets you get that really deep, involved education and lets you have a wide, uh, a broad breadth of education too, because you have time to deviate from the main point of the debate into these other, you know, side debates. Whereas if you're just speaking slowly, you wouldn't have time to do that. So it really is a way to get around time constraints because no one wants an eight hour debate round. Um, it allows you to get around time constraints to have those in-depth conversations. And, you know, the, Common critique of spreading is it's not a spectator sport, and unless you have um, unless you have a background in spreading, there's absolutely no way you can understand it. Um, but that's I think that's an acceptable trade-off, partly because no one's going to PF rounds either. Like very few people go and watch PF rounds for fun unless they're coaches or parents. Um, but um, if you can't explain your cards that you just spread and round at a slower rate of delivery, you probably don't understand them anyways, and you probably can't actually speak on the topic. So if we are educators, if we're trying to get education, then spreading really helps that because it allows you to research more, and, and if you're doing your job well, then you can explain it both to an expert in debate with the debate jargon and spreading and things like that, but also to a non-expert, somebody who doesn't have that background. The way you just explained that sounds reasonable to me. Though I, I've got though there I, are I could say it at speed, so it wouldn't sound reasonable. <laughs> well, I, I actually I think I, I I might want you to do that here in a second because okay. I think we're okay. we we I'm sure we have I we have plenty of folks listening I suspect who have never actually heard spreading and I can't do it very well. Uh, so okay, I might sorry. I might need a de- we might need a demo here in a second. But okay. you know, the biggest logistical difficulty to me is like I, where do you get your judges for your tournaments? So that is honestly one of the biggest challenges. Um, so part of it is that um, spreading is actually very easy to learn how to flow. Um, all you need is what I found a few rounds of really trying to understand what's going on. And 
maybe having the speech in front of you for a while. Um, but it's actually not difficult to learn how to flow. It sounds intimidating, but once you get in it, it's not hard. Like my, uh, my wife is one of our judges. She's the assistant coach. She never did policy. She never competed in any event that does, that has speed. She picked it up almost immediately just because, I mean, it's not hard. Yeah. If, if you're immersed in it and if you really try to understand it, it, it's, you can pick it up pretty quickly, but, um, that is one problem with, um, with speed debate, I guess, of you need to find qualified judges that can listen to it. And because of that debate does tend to get a little bit inbred because the judges that are coming back are usually people that just graduated and you can't pull people in from the community. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a, that, that, that makes sense. Cause I, I, I don't give a whole lot of credit credence to the spectator sport argument, except that, I mean, when I go to a tournament, if I have, uh, I think we're going to the Duke University tournament next weekend, and, or on uh, October fifth, so two weekends from now, and we'll have, I'll have twenty two kids there. I need to supply five judges, and I need, uh, I, I've got a. It, it's really easy if I could say, okay, I can bring these judges who don't know what they're doing. They've never done this before, and judging will make them a bit more qualified for the next time. And there's plenty of events they can do that for, but I couldn't really toss them in to judge policy or judge at speed. I also wouldn't really toss them in to like varsity LD without a conversation first. But it just yeah. it makes it harder, I think, that to to recruit the people around this game that make it work. Yeah. So what I always tell my parent judges is, I know that you're new at this. I always, you know, put on the entry form. Please only put this person in novice. Um, but I, I, I always tell them, I know that you're new at this, but especially at the lower tiers of debate, an expert in debate and a, like, un, I guess, an unexperienced parent will almost always come to the same decision. It might be for different reasons, but they will almost always vote the same way, so long as you can understand the words coming out of the people's mouths. And what I tell parents is if you walk into the round and say, I can't understand speed, please don't go speed, that's the debater's problem if they talk too fast for you to understand. And if the debaters can't adapt, that is their problem and that is their fault. Of course, debaters don't overly appreciate that, but that's part of the game that you need to learn how to do that. Yeah. And this may be more my speech background coming out than the debate <laughs> present, but I still think there is a huge part of debate that can't be completely divorced from rhetoric. This is an act of public communication that you have to be able to communicate in a way that your audience can understand. So if your no, audience you speaks this debater speed language, fine. But if your audience doesn't, it's on you as the communicator to adapt in that moment. No, no, I, I, I fully agree with you that if I were to go to, say, I don't know, um, an academic conference of, of, on physics and just walk into, you know, one of the presentations, I wouldn't understand a word of it. But that doesn't mean that it's not valuable or go, a good rhetorical exercise. It's just I'm not the intended audience. Mm -hmm. um, and so just because an average person coming off the street can't understand a policy debate round, that doesn't mean it's bad or that it needs to be rejected. It just means that it's speaking to an audience that is specialized. And so long as there is um, a valid reason to have that specialized audience, then it's fine as a rhetorical exercise. But if you do have an audience that's a late audience, you need to be able to adapt back the other way too. Yeah, I've, I've had two interactions with former policy debaters in the last couple of years one of them came and judged at one of our tournaments, and he was just so irritated at the inane stupidity of these slow-speaking students. And he was just – his experience with policy made him look down on everyone who didn't play the game at that level. Mm -hmm. 
what I think is a much better model is a guy I met a couple weeks ago named Donald Bryson. He's the head of the, uh, the Civitas Institute, a mm-hmm. North Carolina policy think tank. He debated um, policy for um, the small liberal arts college in Georgia. I don't remember the name of it, but uh, and he told us he he's since gotten away from that and he's slowed down again. Mm-hmm. He's got a very uh, noticeable southern draw that makes his voice quite delightful. But he uh, basically, as a policy guy now, his job is to write policy Fs all day and that that's really what he does and then be able to communicate those to people and he found his time with policy debate incredibly helpful for really going forward and where he wanted to go in life mm-hmm. no yeah policy i mean the the common um the common thing that we say is policy debate is role play for policymakers. that if you want to go into politics i think if you uh it's been a while since i've looked the statistic up but if you look at like the number of congressmen and senators who did policy debate in some form in high school or college, it, the number is insanely high. And that's because if you like politics, then policy debate is a great way to learn more about politics. Um, but so, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of value to the unique way that policy approaches debate. Um, you are right. A lot of policy debaters tend to be pretty elitist about it. Um, and I agree with you. That's a completely wrong way to look at it. Part of the reason we don't do PF anymore is because PF, for me, is harder than policy. Mm-hmm. That once you get the speed and once you get the tech of policy down, it's actually pretty straightforward and pretty simple. Um, and I know how to teach that because I've been teaching that for a long time, and that's what I competed in. But when I go to judge PF, you know, I'm watching and I'm thinking there are clearly norms here, and there are cl- there's clearly a way to do PF, but I don't know what it is. And I can guarantee you my teams who are in rounds right now don't know what it is either. <laughs> So I was like, well, I don't want to have to learn this entirely new style of debate when there's another style that I know my kids are going to be good at and I know they'll be interested in and that I think for me is more fun and also we can be competitively successful faster in it. Yeah, no, that makes sense, though. I, I will say it's it's quite fun to uh, – I, I think it's a lot of fun to try and figure things out from scratch with, with a new debate style. We're, we're currently playing with, uh, with Worlds format. Have you seen this? Mm-hmm. Um, I know what it is. I've never seen a round of it, though. I mean, it's I, I I've I've watched half of a video of it, so I'm clearly no expert on it at all. But uh, if if all goes according to plan, we're going to try to go to the uh, Heart of Europe International Debating Tournament in the Czech Republic this July, and they compete okay. in world's format there. So we're learning it to go to that tournament. Well, your school but clearly has a much bigger debate budget than mine does. I we we have we have a uh, a, a lot of uh, of support. Mr. Luddy is a huge fan of debate, so gotcha. I. I uh, yeah, you've uh, you probably heard the saying, "Shoot for the stars, and you'll at least hit the moon." Uh, yeah. That that's something. What my how the, how that budget request went? It was I was I was amazed. Anyway, let, we probably shouldn't get into budgetary details too much. Yeah, probably here, not. But, that's that, that's yeah. probably not something you're seeing. Yeah, that's that, to do. That, that's that's fine. But uh, it, it's been a lot of fun even to try and think about. Okay, so because one of the things with World School, you don't get cards, and you don't Ooh. get. You only get half of your resolutions you get four weeks before the tournament. The other half are announced day of. It's base, It's a lot like NPDA uh, huh. in terms of just uh, – it, and it's still mo- – it's modeled after British parliamentary debate. So mm-hmm. it's been a lot of fun to kind of just start thinking about how does – if you – your rounds are scored out of 100 – I don't like it's something like 120 points. 40 of those are on style. So how do you create style in your debate? <laughs> 
which is totally foreign to the just strict data and research and evidence-based debate that, uh, I mean, even with public forum and to some extent LD is still the basis for what our other forms of debate do. So remind me, Worlds is the one with eight teams, right? No, uh, not in high school. Okay. I know I was talking to Dr. Doggett a while ago, and he was talking about something like that. That's okay. not what I'm thinking of. What, what okay, the way, okay. the way, um, the way the NSDA has a world school division that's pretty small, but it's growing, uh, where you have teams of three to five that are going up against each other, but only three of those are speakers. So you could theoretically have like, I think this could work, where you have like one person who's really good at flowing but hates talking. <laughs> And one person who's just like sitting back there like, say this, tossing paper up to the people who are speaking kind of thing. I think you could divide the roles up in an interesting way and then and divvy it up. But they've, they've got uh, – it's it, I added up the math. I think a round takes something like, a hun- like uh, an hour and ten minutes or something. But you have three substantive speeches of eight minutes each on each side and then one four-minute reply speech. Huh. And that's it. <laughs> Well, you'll have to let me know how that goes because that sounds – it sounds like it would either be awesome or awful. I, I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I, I'm kind of excited about it because I, I, mean, I hate the kind of research that you're sounding very excited about. I, I yeah. hate getting into the weeds and the, the nth level details mm-hmm. of the application of this law will cause the interstate traffic to increase by 12%, which is going to lead to the need to fill potholes this much more time, which means right, we right, ultimately right. <laughs> need a tax increase or nuclear devastation will result. Like that drives me nuts. I'd much rather we have a a discussion on the level of a philosophical principle with clear reasoning and with general knowledge as the foundation, which I think a classical education lends itself to. And I think World School will do that, but I might be completely wrong. This may be a failed experiment a year or two from now. Well, let me know how that goes because that sounds that sounds interesting. I, I definitely will. Uh, okay, can can you give us? Do you have anything on hand to give us a quick demonstration of, of oh, spreading? Um, You'll probably want to edit this out, but if you give me like 20 seconds, I can. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll edit out any of the pauses or any like awkward moments. All right, cool. Uh, I just need to get something out of my file real quick. Sure. Actually, also, in order to plug in my webcam, I had to disconnect my keyboard, so that doesn't, oh. that doesn't help too much. Uh, let's see. Where's our debate file? Come on. Here we go. Oh, well, that's interesting. I apologize. Oh, no worries. Give me like two seconds. Yeah, no, no rush. Find what you need. I'm going to grab some water while you're hunting for that. All right, sounds good.
<laughs> All right. Are you, I have the tab closed. Are you back yet? Okay, cool. All right. So, uh, Brian, you've got a good sample for us of spreading. Yeah, so I'll just read a little bit of our the critique that we're reading on the neg. So I'll just kind of read the first card. If you want me to stop before then, just let me know. Okay. All right. So this is what uh, we would, part of what we would read in the 1NC after the AF just reads their affirmative. Policy debate operates within the realm of governmentality. The self demonic debate does not allow us to question the authority of the USFG and forces us to, unaccepted, uh, to accept unthinkingly that it should have power over arms sales. So, Tripoli 19. Population refers to people, phenomena, and variables that compass a network of social relationships at the site in which political power operates, political power that becomes, thus becomes a all and each uh, thought fragment which pro- uh, problematizes population government security as a problem of government governmentality. Governmentality operates as a uh, product of governmental uh, uh, subject. The problem of government does a referral to the government of the state, the government of trivial through pedagogy, the government of conduct, and the government of oneself. Governmentality means the ensemble formed by the institutions, procedures, analyses, reflections, calculations, and tactics that throw the uh, exercise of the foreign power, which has in its uh, target population wide study, governmentality wide critique, so that we might uh, perform the art of not being governed so much. So, and then that for eight minutes. All right. Also, I am very, very rusty, so that was my debaters are significantly faster and much smoother at that than I am. So, so. give me, I, I, I followed the first sentence and then I, I fell off that particular train. So give me the very brief summary of what that card was. So basically it just said that um, it's a critique that basically says the way that we debate doesn't allow us to question the idea of being ruled by a government. That when a government operates and we give it power over ourselves, it um, takes away some degree of freedom. And so what we should be doing in debate is questioning the act of being governed, questioning why we're allowing ourselves to be governed. So that's an anarchist card. Um, it's not. So, no. The, <laughs> the, the critique, I mean, it sounds like it, yes. But the critique is uh, from a guy called Agamben. Uh, uh, who doesn't actually like? Uh, who doesn't actually advocate anarchy? But he does advocate a world without government, more like of a Lockean state of nature type thing. I'm just going to play my etymology card and point out that a world without government is literally a narcos, like with yeah, 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 without yeah. government. Okay, so that's one of those like lexical definition of anarchy. Yes, you are correct. <laughs> Uh, the connotative definition of anarchy, not really, no. Granted, granted, you're not talking about Mad Max or or something right, like right. that. Or, okay. Well, I, I want to circle back to that word you mentioned a minute ago because I still want to hear your argument for why K-Debate is, in fact, a good thing. But mm-hmm. since you just gave us a good example based on the resolution, let's take a second and let me get your thoughts as a coach who is currently working with this resolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, let's talk resolution analysis for policy for a second. Yeah, for sure. So uh, you guys are using the same – it's the NSDA policy resolution, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So that resolution reads, resolved, the United States federal government should substantially reduce direct commercial sales and or foreign military sales of arms from the United States. Mm -hmm. So what do you see in this resolution? What are the big issues going on here? So, yeah, I was really excited about this resolution because it's very straightforward. There is a clear topic area. Most people know what arms sales are. Like it's not something that's uh, super obscure. Um, so when you think of arms sales, there's a few that just immediately pop into your mind, and that would be U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia, U.S. arms sales to Israel, and U.S. arms sales to Taiwan. Um, those are kind of the the big three cases that we're seeing a lot right now. Um, so 
yeah, that, those, those, are the, those are the big issues. Uh, the United States is currently selling arms to, uh, in the case of Saudi Arabia, a country that is at war with you know, someone else in the region, and they're using American arms in order to oppress indigenous populations, in order to conquer Yemen, and so on and so forth. In the case of Israel, the Israel is using uh, U.S. arms to be antagonistic toward Iran and to um, oppress the Palestinian population. In the case of Taiwan, that um, either the U.S. selling arms to Taiwan will cause them to declare independence, and that would cause war. So, I mean, all three of those are actually like legitimate scenarios and legitimate things that are going on in the world right now. That's like not the, you know, policy, everything ends in extinction. Those are real world, real world examples of arms sales right now. So all three of those then would be almost launching points to begin going and researching about how do arms sales affect Taiwan mm-hmm. and Israel and the third one you mentioned a minute ago, uh, Saudi, Arabia. Saudi Arabia, and then looking at, but then, and that gives you access to a whole bunch of impact chains of what happens mm-hmm. if we affirm exactly. or deny the resolution. Exactly. So, so let's say that, like I said, our case is to cancel the fighters half of the um, arms sales to Taiwan. So if I'm a negative, I'm thinking, okay, what is, what, what bad things is that going to cause to happen? Um, so some really common ones, of course, are um, Taiwan will get angry at the United States and will think the United States won't support it in a war against mainland China. Um, that might cause Taiwan to uh, build nuclear weapons uh, because that's what they did in 1979. That's why we sell them arms in the first place. And if Taiwan builds nuclear weapons, most likely China would invade. Like it's most experts agree if Taiwan did that, China would invade. Um, another another common dissent against that is Japan that the United States uses Taiwan to check China right now. So if we no longer are protecting Taiwan, Japan is going to be like, I don't know if the U.S. is going to protect me anymore. So Japan might militarize, and that might, uh, and that might cause war in the uh, Asia region. We already talked about like the example with Israel. Um, then there's also a lot of generic arguments. So like I said, the affirmative can bring up literally anything that falls into the resolution. We're working... We're working on an app right now that would do something to fix zero-day exploits in cybersecurity uh, cybersecurity programs. So if a neg has never heard of that before, and based on your facial expression, I'm guessing you've never heard of that. That um, is correct. <laughs> um, I might have to have figured out some of that by next week because our next public forum resolution is on cybersecurity issues. Uh, so I'm about it. to be learning a lot more about cybersecurity. But I please, keep going. So um, – if I'm a negative and I've never heard of that before, of course I'm not going to have anything that directly answers. I will by the next tournament because I'll go out and research it, but I don't right now. Um, and so I'm going to bring up a lot of what's called a generic argument. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of disadvantages out there that say you know arms sa- any reduction in arms sales is going to cause these things to happen. If the U.S. reduces any arms sales at all, the most ludicrous one I've seen is Trump is going to win right now. Democrats hate arms sales, so if Trump cancels arms sales, they'll vote for him. Uh, Democrats will vote for him. Like, okay, probably not. <laughs> um, but, uh, but just just to make I, sure I, I understand that, that means that 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 argument is claiming that Donald Trump winning is the terrible impact that will happen. Uh, and then it keeps going. Donald Trump will cause war with probably Iran and kill everybody. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I, I don't think I voted for that one yet. <laughs> but, but there's a lot of generic stuff out there that, like, any U.S cancellation of arms sales is going to cause backlash from the, say, uh, military-industrial complex. 
and that backlash will cause some impact to happen. So there's a lot of arguments that negatives can have just kind of in their back pockets um, to throw out against any case they see. And one of those is a critique. Ah, all right. Well, I still want to hold on to that for a second. Oh, because I'm, on, I'm, I'm ready. You're ready. Good, good. Keep, 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 keep being ready for it. Um, okay. I do want to know though, where, where do you go for research for this? I mean, are you, are you diving deep into databases? Uh, I know there are, um, there are some teams that put their cases online. Like, are, are, are you, you're, I'm assuming you're not reading like Boston High School's policy case and saying, oh, this is great. We're going to run this. But like, where, where are you guys going for research on this? So, I mean, part of it is I have a master's in poli science, so I already know a lot about most of this stuff. Okay, um, good. So, like, I already knew about Saudi Arabia. I already knew about Taiwan. I already knew about Israel. Like, a lot of the stuff, I just know that there is a case out there somewhere. Um, and, you know, my, a lot of my students like politics. That's why they're doing debates. So a lot of them have pre-existing knowledge that they can use to build a case. Um, but, um, I mean, honestly, a lot of the times it's just reading the Wikipedia page. Um, reading the Wikipedia page of U.S. arms sales, we had a great idea um, for um, a case that would cut off the sale of American weapons to Uganda because Uganda takes American weapons that they bought and then sell them to South Sudan to fuel the civil war there. Um, we decided not to finish writing that because we realized that, okay, if the U.S. no longer sells arms, the European Union will, and it's pointless. Um, like, it's not going to fix anything. Um, so, you know, you, there's sometimes you start a case and realize it's not going to work and you just have to start over. But yeah, I mean, honestly, Wikipedia and pre-existing knowledge are where we get most of our cases from. Okay. And I'm assuming you by Wikipedia, you're, you're mining the footnotes in Wikipedia and then go into the more legitimate sources or are you citing Wikipedia in your cases? No, no, no. You don't want to cite Wikipedia in your cases. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, you, you use Wikipedia or other, you know, just general information websites that are generally pretty accurate, but not you know, not citable, um, just to get case ideas. So like I went to the Wikipedia page, saw U.S. arms sales to Uganda, and and then just started honestly Googling stuff for uh, Uganda. So most of the practice of research is just going very, very far into the depths of Google um, to in order to find evidence. I mean, there's no requirement that has to be like from a peer-reviewed journal because most of that stuff is going to be pretty old and we need recency. Uh, We need recency Uh in our cards. So it's honestly just finding a lot of blogs, uh, a lot of, you know, uh, experts in security and experts in um, foreign relations, stuff like that, write blogs um, and cutting from that, cutting from, you know, news sites and things like that. Well, on that note, let's uh, let, let's get to the argument you've been ready to make. So uh, we, we've talked on this show several times before about critique, and just in case any of our listeners are new to this idea, that's a that's a that's called a K because it's from the German spelling of critique, K R I T I K, and it's an idea that was pioneered by Immanuel Kant, but has become a mainstay, if I understand this correctly, in policy debate, and occasionally creeps into LD uh, sometimes. As far as I know, it's not huge in public forum, but there are public forum teams that are trying to begin using that approach. So, mm-hmm. uh, Brian, I wonder if we can combine maybe two questions in one. Uh, right. you, you told me a couple weeks ago that you would convince me that K-Debate is legit. So mm-hmm. maybe if you could make your case and then uh, also tell us where do you see this fitting into the current policy resolution? Right. So um – one thing that I dislike about debate, um, I'm going to, I guess, start with something I dislike about policy 
creeping out and then actually answer your question. But one thing I dislike about debate is that teams that are leaving policy for different, uh, for different forms of debate like to take policy with them. And PF was created specifically to avoid speed, to avoid case, and to avoid counterplans. And all of those things are creeping into PF right now. Um, and same thing with LD. The LD is slowly becoming one-person policy because people leave policy for LD and take because they don't like whatever in policy, and they take policy with them into an LD and PF. I very much dislike that because I think that those are legitimate, excellent forms of debate that do a very good job at teaching what they're trying to teach. Um, so all that to say, if you face a K and PF, I'm very sorry. Um, but I second the I second the the sentiment there. Uh, one thing, one advantage that policy has over other forms of debate that I talked about a little bit is that there's a lot more speaking time. And especially when you add in that there's speed um, that isn't in other forms of debate, there's a lot more effective speaking time in addition to just the increased time limits. And that lets you really dive into these complex ideas and these complex uh, and these complex philosophies. And I think that so for me, for us as a classical school, I found that our kids actually pick up the K debate a lot faster than they could pick up the policy debate because I teach seventh grade history, we read Plato and Aristotle in seventh grade. So they've been reading and thinking about philosophy for a lot longer than they've been reading and thinking about government. And so for them, I found it's a very good uh, starting point for them coming into policy. And um, so I guess the first question you asked is, why do I think it's legitimate? I think it's legitimate because it's what we do all the time. That when we talk about when we talk about policies, we don't just talk about the numbers and dollars and you know how many people it'll help, how many people it'll hurt, and things like that. We also ask ourselves, or at least we should be asking ourselves, is this good for the soul of the country? That there are things that we could do. Needle exchange is a really good example. Needle exchange empirically does reduce drug deaths and does save government money because you aren't having to pay for repeat hospital bills. But generally speaking, conservatives oppose it because it's not good for the soul. It's not good for a country to say we will embrace this even though it's bad because it saves us money. And we're constantly making these calculations, weighing the morality of a policy against the against utilitarian impacts of the policy, um, weighing those two things against each other and asking how do we rectify if they're at odds with each other how do we rectify them being at odds with each other and which one is more important in this case and is there is there a way to make i guess a unified theory does morality always take precedence over utilitarianism or does utilitarian utilitarianism always take you know if there's any conflict there do we always side on one side or the other and that really is at at the heart of it what a good k debate is is asking ourselves okay cool you might you might be able to solve this one problem. You might be able to solve this one issue that's going on right now, like U.S. selling weapons to Taiwan. Cool, you solved that. But is it good that we solve that? Is, is the policy that you're proposing instilling a mindset in us that's good? And then the, I guess, so that's a kind of a meta debate. The meta debate above that is the realization that debate is really just a game. Like it doesn't matter if the judge votes AF or NEG. It, um, the phrase is fiat is illusory, that even though we're pretending that we're policymakers, we're not. And no matter which way the judge votes, the, uh, the weapons are going to be sold to Taiwan, that the judge has no influence on that whatsoever. But 
the ideas that we espouse, the ideas that we present in a debate round do matter because they have an influence on the way that we are going to see the world, uh, the world after the round. We remember our debates and we remember the methodology we use in our debates and those impact us even if we don't under, even if we don't consciously know that. And so another aspect of the K debate is asking ourselves, is the act of debating or is the, are the assumptions that we have to make in order to debate this round, are those good assumptions? Should we, in, in our case, vote neg? Should we vote neg in order to reject the assumption of the resolution or the assumption that there's, in our case, that there should be a government and things like that? Oh, so yeah. it, it honestly is kind of making explicit, in my opinion, the, the, the weighing that we do every day when it comes to policies. Interesting. It's the place where I've seen this come up. I've heard uh, is is particularly in terms of uh, feminism K's and um, uh, of all things pronoun uh, gendered pronoun critiques. Yeah, yeah. And that's I had not thought about it on the level you were just describing about the what assumptions must we hold in order to debate this position and are those assumptions actually harming us in some way and that's why we need to reject the resolution and instead debate about x y or z yeah so i mean there's another level there of um one thing that i we so we ran a femk last year uh, it included slam poetry it said borders and uh, borders inherently hurt women it was great it was awesome Honestly, it was to just cover for the fact that one of our debaters couldn't speak very fast. Um, but <laughs> so all that lofty argumentation you just shelled out a moment ago, which might all be true, is not opposing the fact that sometimes K-debate is covering for a lack of real argument or real debate skill. I mean, yes, it is. But okay. I mean, here, here, here's a, it is, the reason we run K's is entirely utilitarian, I will admit, which kind of violates everything I just said. But but, but it doesn't violate of what I'm about to say, which is that at the end of the day, debate is a game. And if, if we approach debate with the assumption that we don't actually advocate what we're saying, that we are just playing a game to interrogate the form of argumentation and not the content of arguments themselves, then we get access to be able to argue for things that we don't necessarily agree with. Of course, I don't agree with the government that we should collapse the federal government. Of course, I don't think that... Uh, national borders are inherently anti-woman. But if I can make an argument for that, and if I can learn how to interrogate, if I can learn how to interrogate assumptions that we make from the perspective of someone that I disagree with, from the, or in some cases, from the perspective of someone that I think is kind of crazy, then I can also learn how to, then that process and going through that process of putting together these arguments also teaches me how to, interrogate assumptions from the perspective that I do agree with from the Christian, you know, uh, from the Christian uh, Greco-Roman tradition uh, and allows me to access, I guess, that interrogation better. And I mean, that's entirely rooted in the Western tradition. The classic example of how many angels can dance on a pin. That is an exercise that medieval monks went through of we know this is a ridiculous argument, but being able to generate arguments in favor of whatever I'm saying is is the point. The point isn't to arrive at the truth of how many angels can dance on a pin. The point is to learn how to form arguments in order to get to that admittedly ridiculous conclusion. 
I'm, I think I'm missing a link there somewhere because it's entirely it's, possible. It, it seems it's like possible that I skipped it. Well, I, I, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. I, I remember Will Cooney telling me the first time I was trying to figure out this debate stuff, I was worried about the exact thing you're describing. Is this just sophistry? Is this just the ability to come up with arguments about anything and everything? And he's like, no, 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 no. Debate is, uh, his phrase was a pre-rhetorical exercise. When you get up to make your act of rhetoric, you have figured out what you think is true, and you're trying to persuade people that X is true, and therefore you should do Y. Debate is pre-rhetoric. It's before you know which one you actually stand upon. And when you go through the process of a debate, you're either going to figure out this argument is true, this argument is false. I'm not sure if it's true or false, but I don't like it. I need to find a better argument. And like, really, those three are the case. So as far as that goes, I completely agree with you. What I'm trying to – my understanding is that a K is rejecting the rule, the parameters of the game though. Isn't a K rejecting the resolution and rejecting the very grounds upon which the people have gathered to – have prepared to debate? I mean sometimes, sometimes yes and sometimes no. So I mean I guess the last part of your question, the answer is just simply no of – isn't this rejecting what people have prepared to debate? No, in modern debate, K's are so common, everybody has a generic answer to K's file. So, I mean, we're reading a, we're reading a, a biopolitics, a Gombin critique, everybody has answers to that. It's not like we're taking anybody by surprise here. Um, same with fem K's, same with queer, queer theory K's, same with anthro K's, whatever. Like, everybody has answers to those. So, everybody is prepped out for it. It's not like we're taking anybody by surprise. But, I mean, K's did develop, admittedly, as a way to reject the game of debate or as a way to step outside the parameters of debate. But um, I think K's were developed by a guy at Wake Forest named Shanahan. I don't remember his first name um, in the early 90s. But as time has progressed, um, K's have become part of the game and K's have become just another level of the debate to be had. Um, So, I mean, yes, it's arguing to reject the resolution, but so is a disad. Like a disad is saying the resolution is bad because it'll cause these things, these bad things to happen. So don't vote for it. A K is just saying the resolution is bad because it instills a bad mindset in us. So don't vote for it. Okay, I think I can see that. I mean, that that's uh, that 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 makes that process you described makes sense. Um, I read. I'm trying to remember. The, I don't remember the name of the work. But I read a horrible, awful tome by Jacques Derrida last year. And one of the things that he talks about in there is trying to get break out of the logocentric frame. And he wants to do philosophy that is not in, that is outside of the framework of reality. And he spends the entire book, or at least as much as I read, trying to explain how that's his goal. And I think there's something similar in the attempt of a K, except that it sounds like the result is the same. Derrida, for all that he's really almost impossible to understand, he does not escape the frame of reality. He still does really bad philosophy inside the frame. He can't actually break free from the laws of rationality and thought that he thinks he can. And a K doesn't itself reject the very parameters of debate. It just maybe created a new level that hadn't previously been there. But now mm-hmm. if you're going to play the debate, the game, you need to at least be able to deal with that, that tactic. I mean, yeah, it, I guess it does break out of the traditional realm of policy debate of we're going to talk about whether or not this policy should be passed in the real world. But, I mean, I think 
So maybe it tried to do, maybe it was trying to do that in the 90s. I don't know. I wasn't debating in the 90s. Um, but maybe it tried to do that in the 90s, but it's not really that now. For all we say, I mean, if I were to read you the entire critique that we're running, we say we want to break out of the debate game and we want to break down the debate space and all that stuff. But everybody is fully aware that those are just phrases that critiques use. That in reality, all we are trying to do is interrogate, is interrogate like the assumptions of the debate. Um, and so we can say that we're transforming the debate space, but in reality, everybody knows it's part, it's just part of the game. Um, it's just another level of the game. And I think it, I think it's a good level to add because it's something that should go into the policymaking process. Fascinating. I think that, that answers another question I had about policy debate in general. I know you mm-hmm. talked about LD has in a lot of places become kind of policy light. Does mm-hmm. does policy uh, debate have really – does policy debate deal with on the level of moral and ethical principles or is it primarily advantages and disadvantages? So yes and no. Um, policy debate is – and I don't know what the stand, I guess standard paradigm in PF or LD is. But policy debate almost, almost always comes down to utilitarianism of at the end of the day, does the affirmative plan kill more people than it saves or does it save more people than it kills? Um, if it saves more people, you vote F. If you if it kills more people, you vote NEG. Like, it's a crass way of putting it, but that is usually how policy debates break down. And that honestly is how the policymaking process oftentimes breaks down in the real world. Um, of course, politicians don't say that, but that is what's happening in the back room um, of crunching the numbers, facts and figures and numbers and things like that. I guarantee you that almost every policy has that file um, buried in some drawer somewhere. Um, so you, utilitarianism is the standard is the standard framing mechanism, is the standard paradigm for debate, uh, for policy. Now, of course, critiques try to add that level of the uh, morality. The problem that critiques usually have is that there's no really good way to judge a debate without using utilitarianism. Um, or at least to judge a policy debate round without utilitarianism. Because one of the assumptions of policy, and one of the reasons why it's usually former debaters or coaches that are judging, is that we want to be as objective as possible. And we want the we want the round the outcome of the round to be as predictable as possible. Meaning if you had ten judges watching a round, more or less most of them will agree on the outcome of the round. And if it's a close round, there'll be some disagreement. But meaning that given certain inputs, usually get the same output. Util is very, very good at that because it gives a precise framing mechanism and a precise way to vote. Morality, when you try to enter into the realm of morality, that's a lot harder to judge on the flow and a lot easier to judge in the judge's mind. The problem is then that comes that then you get into the realm of judge intervention and just trying to, like we were talking earlier, pander to what you think the judge wants to hear. So the problem I have with morality-based, that was a very long way of saying, the problem I have with morality-based debate is that the judge is the arbiter of morality, which creates the sophistic problem of trying to just say what the judge thinks. That's a big problem with policy debate in the homeschool leagues, where there isn't spreading, there isn't the focus on util and things like that. Of basically, it's just a rush to be who can be who can out conservative the other team. Of uh, you know who can be the most conservative to pander to the homeschool mom in the back. And I mean that is a crass way to put it. Granted, but that's what it is. That is that is how that league operates. Um, so 
case, try to engage in the moral framework and try to engage in the moral, uh, I guess, the, the world of morality. But usually it just comes back to util of this mindset would kill everybody. Um, so don't, don't vote for the mindset. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I mean, that's, that's part of that is necessary as part of kind of thinking about since the, the very style of debate is built on considerations of practical politics in the real world. And in the absence of a unified worldview and a unified set of higher principles, it's really hard to find things we all actually agree on that we can use to evaluate the wisdom or folly of some choice. And, and for me, and for me, you know, that's honestly kind of a safety mechanism um, as a classical school like that allows me to that allows me to say, hey, you know, we're going to present these arguments that, you know, we don't agree with. But it's a game to interrogate, you know, the utilitarian impact. So it does help. It does help people to be able to present arguments that in the real world they very strongly disagree with. Of course, we don't argue for anything that we find object, you know, objectively immoral or anything like that. But it does allow us to debate in that gray space and interrogate that gray space. I think there's a lot of value in that. I remember I was teaching uh, Plato's Republic this past quarter, and we have this section of book two I'd never noticed before, where I think it's Glaucon is speaking to Socrates. Thrasymachus has already made his first, like, oh, justice is the interest of the stronger. And eventually Socrates just kind of bulldozes over him. And then he, uh, and then Glaucon tells him, Socrates, that was not your best work. <laughs> not a great <laughs> argument. I'm going to make the most impressive argument I can. I'm going to make the argument Thrasymachus should have made about justice and the interest of stronger so that you will make a better argument in response. And that, in my mind, is a great picture of what we're trying to do, that in debate – and yes, everybody wants to win, and of course, only fifty percent of people in a round win. So, but mm-hmm. the uh, but the ultimate goal is to spur each other on in argumentation through creating right. strong arguments. Right, and the um, the understanding that what we're doing is a game, and that we don't necessarily agree with what we're saying, it allows for that for a level of abstraction from it. Mm-hmm. That I've, I've seen people run arguments that they believe in very strongly and that um, they, you know, yeah, that they believe in very strongly. And it tends to get very heated um, because, you know, they believe it and the person, by the nature of debate, has to disagree with them. Um, and so when, when debate becomes personal, I guess when you're discussing personal beliefs in debate, it's a lot harder to get that abstraction and that kind of objective analysis of the form of argumentation. So it honestly kind of helps that I don't have a strong opinion about arms sales in most cases. So like, I don't care if I, you know, I don't care if my app is right or wrong. I just want to present a good argument. That's a good spot to be in. I, I found the limits of the other side of that this past mm-hmm. summer. We're at the, uh, we were at the, the Coolidge Cup tournament in Vermont, and after hours, uh, a friend named Catherine Bass, is a, uh, she's, a, she's a current Hillsdale student, was interning with the Coolidge Foundation. She and I were talking, and I have a couple students that I'm trying to talk into applying to go to Hillsdale. So mm-hmm. we had an after-dinner public debate Resolve. The student should go to Hillsdale. She was on AF and I was on NEG. And man, I made myself mm-hmm. sick to my stomach trying to argue that. I gave it all I could. And I just, like, do you remember when you were there, were there any like 
awful Detroit news articles about how Dr. Arn is a racist and, and all oh, these. No, that, that broke the year after. Okay. I yeah. You know, it's that those, those articles cycle through, but because he doesn't know the racial breakdown of the student body and all this stuff, of course, Hillsdale, mm-hmm. I just basically like ran all of those arguments. I felt like such a dog doing that, mm-hmm. but what, there was a guy there. I, uh, one of the students name is Kwong. If he's listening to this, I hope he enjoys the, the shout out. But uh, he, um, they, they, there were five students judging the round, and they'd all done their feedback, and Kwong insisted on going last. And he declared a double loss because oh. he said Catherine had done a terrible job. But, Mr. Herring, you, all of your arguments could be construed as support for Hillsdale. <laughs> what he told me. <laughs> Like, uh, your your lack of uh, government oversight could be construed as strong and independent, a strong independent institution, and and so on. It was anyway. I there it, it did not help me at all to try and run an argument that I actually was thoroughly personally invested in. That was not mm-hmm. a good call. Well, uh, Brian, we should probably start wrapping this up. This episode's gotten uh, gotten pretty long as is, but before we do. Uh, dream with me for a little bit. Uh, you, you, you started a debate program by accident, you said earlier. Uh, assuming things go as, as hopefully they will and your school continues to offer you a job and you, you continue to stay there, where do you see your program uh, two, five, ten years from now? Mm-hmm. So I am very, very blessed that my administration is absolutely gung-ho on debate and absolutely loves having a debate program. So... Um, administrative support is great. Like, I, I don't remember if this was on or off camera, but I said, you know, I, I said earlier, I have some students that uh, can be competitive on a national level in the TOC circuit in a few years. So um, our plan this year, this is our first year that we've actually bothered registering with NSDA. Uh, so we already have, I think, four students qualified for districts. Um, more will come, you know, later on. Uh, later on this semester. So we're going to go to NSDA this year, probably, hopefully NSDA nationals if we get some calls. Um, but yeah, in a couple of years, we want to be breaking at NSDA, breaking at NCFL. Um, and then probably in two or three years, we're going to try to start getting active on the TOC circuit um, and trying to get those bids to go to Kentucky. So yeah, I mean, we're, we're a tiny school. Our total school enrollment K through 12 is 214. But we are incredibly blessed to have the backing of a very supportive administration and, so, frankly, some students who are just brilliant um, and who pick up debate faster than anybody that I've ever coached before. Um, so, yeah, we are, we are here to be, like, we, we want to be a nationally recognized small, but a nationally competitive program. Fantastic. Well, maybe. I, I don't know. I don't, we're, we, we, too, just joined the NSDA officially this year. We've been on the fringes for a while. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I have no idea if we'll ever I, – I just can't imagine flying out to Albuquerque, New Mexico this year. But maybe in a future year we'll run into each other at NSDA. You guys. That's not a big of a deal for us. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, Brian, I've got a bunch of novice students this year. I have a bunch mm-hmm. of middle schoolers especially who have taken to debate, a few sixth mm-hmm. graders – uh, a few seventh and eighth graders, uh, what many of whom they they just might listen to this episode. Uh, so, what advice do you would you offer to novice debaters, brand new at this game? So, I will actually use a line that you told me once, and that is to just fall in love with the game. That don't join debate because of the topic or because you like arguing or anything like that. Because the topic will change. I've debated some resolutions I love, and I've debated some resolutions I do not care about at all. But 
but it's the game that's the fun part of getting up in front of judges and arguing and trying to convince people that you're right and speaking and being able to persuade your friends that you're right is is the best and most fun part of debate. And so, yeah, like what I always tell my students is debate is has a very steep learning curve and debate is incredibly intimidating at first and frankly, very boring at first. Like when you have to sit down and learn what a resolution is, what fiat power is, what solvency is like, that's really, really boring. But go out to the first couple tournaments. You will lose a lot of rounds, most likely, maybe not, but probably you'll lose a lot of rounds. But as that process goes, you'll learn very quickly whether or not debate is something you want, uh, whether or not debate is something that you want to pursue. And if it is something that you want to pursue, then go for it and fall in love with it. And honestly, like debate is the one activity that I've done that has probably shaped who I am the most outside of church and all that stuff uh, that has shaped who I am the most. And it's legitimately made me a much better person. Fantastic. Well, uh, Brian, are you on social media? Is there a place people can follow your team when you like post trophy picks and all those things? Um, our, uh, uh, our school's Facebook is um, Grace Academy of Georgetown. Um, I'll say that again slower. Grace Academy of Georgetown. Um, every now and then they post uh, trophy picks there, but man, we don't even have internet at my school. Like, I, there's no way my there's no way my students are running an Instagram or a Facebook or anything like that for the team. Uh, that's funny. Well, hey, at least they're they're more likely to be paying attention in class if they're not exactly. trying to like uh, catch the news or or follow people on Instagram during the school day. Oh man, well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me, Josh. It was definitely a lot of fun. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you as well for tuning in to another episode of What's the Res? We hope that you've enjoyed this part of the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. Normally, we don't do a ton with policy debate. That's not my background, but uh, today my guest has been Brian Brooks, debate coach at Grace Academy in Texas. So, uh, And if you want to send us any feedback about this episode or any questions that we could pass on Brian's way, if, uh, if you wanted to do that, you can email us at whatsthereres at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit, the hashtag at what's the res underscore. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash what's the res. Uh, just in case uh, you, you need more debate in your life and or maybe your coach has told you you need flowing practice and you want to flow some debates. Uh, we have a whole stream of premium debates that we do where we call these real debates by real people, educated non-experts debating the important issues of the day. You can access those at the website whatstherez.podbean.com slash premium. We do a new episode every month. The upcoming episode for September is going to be on the uh, Universal Basic Income, the uh, uh, Andrew Yang's program. Uh, the episode for October uh, for November is going to be on a question of racial reparations and whether or not the United States federal government should pay racial reparations. So hopefully you'll uh, uh, check those out, and uh, we hope they'll be a resource to you. Be sure to tune in next time for more What's the Res? And until then... Work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.